Well, good. We're here back on June the 10th. Not having met last week, we're back with lesson number 28 as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 5, verse 6 this morning, looking again at the Beatitudes. We've, I trust, had a, had a good time so far. We've taken our time. We're taking at least one solid lesson with each Beatitude. Uh, as we go through and look, we're, I would remind you again about the progression that we see, particularly with the first four uh, Beatitudes here as we go through and Look at them as they come to us, poor in spirit. We covered first what that means. We looked at what it means to mourn. We talked about it specifically as relating to mourning over our sin, acknowledging our sin and so forth. And then meekness or better uh, translated gentleness. And we talked about the strength that's within that definition there. It's not a, uh, a Mickey Mouse definition. It's not a weak definition. Not at all. Meekness. It's uh, strong enough to be gentle. That kind of uh, uh, definition is what's put forth when we look at that. A very uh, desirable quality and a notable quality, a necessary quality in a person who already uh, understands the depth of their own depravity, their own sin. They're broken over their sin, thus the second phase, which is mourning, the, the second one, and then Meekness. So you've got those three in progression. And they take us up to where we are today in chapter 5, verse 6. As we look at this statement from Christ where He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we can begin just by focusing on these words from the Scripture itself. Looking, uh, Let's look at hunger and thirst first. We've already looked at blessedness three times. Happy, blessed, happy in a spiritual kind of way. But here, to hunger and thirst. To be sure, the word that was put forth when... You know, Christ spoke these words, and certainly when the, the pen came down on the paper, it was to convey this intense longing that comes from the heart. The deepest desire within a person's heart. A very, very strong desire. You might say the strongest of desires. If you were able to, to sit down just for a moment and say, what is the most important thing to me right now? apart from all the issues that I have uh, personally, things that I'm dealing with, concerns that I have, disappointments that I have, you know, aspirations that I have, goals, whatever in my life as a whole, what is the most important thing to me right now? That's what we're talking about. This very, very strong desire, a passion, a deep passion, a literal, a literal force inside of us. And I don't know how else to describe it other than to say we know that that is a done deal. It's something that cannot be challenged in our life. It's, it's what we hang on to. And we're talking about truths. And more specifically, we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Joel's been, uh, has talked to us in the past as he's taught, <clears throat> began teaching through 
the churches in uh, Revelation in chapter 2, and you'll recall the church at Ephesus had left its first love. And that again this morning would be the challenge for us, is to maintain that kind of passion, that kind of dedication, the literal motivation behind everything that we do, particularly in the church, particularly in the church. That motivation has to be the person of Christ. Now think of it very practically. How much time do we spend literally focused upon our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I would, I would offer to you this morning to do less is to see Him in some sort of ethereal state. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? He's not an apparition. All right, He's not something for the future. In fact, He's with us right now. He abides with us, in us, through the Holy Spirit. I understand they're separate. It's the very presence of God within us. Do we treat Him that way? Do we talk to Him that way? Do we respond as though He's right there with us? Because He is. And He's looking. (laughs) And He's evaluating and He's providing. He's doing all that He does. The key word is relationship. He is our focus. So what is our point here? This is what we protect. This is what we want. This is what we desire. Literally, this is what we hunger and thirst for. And how can we do that? Because those first three that we've mentioned, those first three Beatitudes are a reality in our life as well. We've confronted our sin. We know that we have nothing to offer. We know that we're poor in spirit. We know that we can't bring anything to the table. We can't be worthy. We can't. And it causes us mourning, does it not? It brings sadness. It brings regret. But yet when we turn to Christ, when we turn to Him, and remember this was encompassed in this definition of meekness, looking to what God has provided after the realization after owning, if you will, our sin and knowing the state that we're in. So it's, as we say in its simplest form sometimes, certainly as we share with people and witness to people, it's not just turning away from something, our sin, our own flesh, our own desires. It's turning to Christ. Turning to Him. And the Bible would describe our attitude in doing that as meekness or gentleness. Being able to look to Him in confidence. And that takes us up to where we are. That produces this continual, continual, mind you, hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, yes. That's only found in Him. And you're right. I heard someone say Jesus, and you're right. You're absolutely right. Why this type of language? And this does us good. You know, when we look at Scripture, it helps us to go back and look at it from a historical or or cultural perspective sometimes. Few Americans have ever experienced hunger and thirst, really. Comparatively, probably, probably no one in here, probably, has ever experienced it. And you say, no, wait a minute, I've been hungry. I missed a meal last week. That is not what I'm talking about, and that is not what the Scripture's talking about. No, hunger and thirst. This was a very real thing. There would have been very few first century Jews who had not had some type of experience with this. And you can, 
you can uh, rest assured it would have been a very detrimental, a very notable experience in their life. Hunger and thirst because of poverty, because of famine, because of siege. This was an agrarian community and so forth. You understand the history of, of the Jews and the Romans and the sieges and all the battles and so forth up and down. You can go back and read some horrific details in the Old Testament and Second Kings about a horrible time of siege and destitution which resulted in hunger and thirst, famine, and the things that they resorted to, you know, cannibalism, just to stay alive. And other things that are so distasteful I don't even want to mention this morning. But this is what we're talking about. And these are the images that would have popped up. To hunger and thirst. When you make that statement in that day, in that culture, culture to the average Jew, this is what pops into their mind. This is, this is a time of desperation. That's what they would have heard. That's the way they would have processed this. So Christ is making a point. The words aren't chosen by happenstance. They're very specific. He's talking about a time of destitution, a time wherein our physical surroundings, that which is going on outside of us and within us, cause us to focus upon one thing, the most important thing for that moment, and certainly a person who's on the verge of death or dying from hunger and thirst, without a doubt, knows what their specific need is, right? That's the state of mind he's talking about, but in a spiritual kind of way, right? destitution spiritually. We've been there. We've passed through that. We've experienced the grace of God. And having experienced that release, having experienced that reality in our life that God has provided for us in the most desperate of times. Again, I'm speaking spiritually here. That time in our life, that time of repentance, that time of great Regret that time of focusing upon the true nature of our sins and what it was going to yield in our life if there was no change. And we respond to the Word and the Holy Spirit and we experience the new birth. <coughs> That's what gives us this hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because the Scripture's clear. It's only those people who've experienced that. And you can describe it however you want. I'm describing it the best way I can this morning. It's the people who've experienced that who hunger and thirst. Those who haven't experienced that don't desire it, quite frankly. They've not been to the point of need. And it's all centered in the person of Jesus Christ and His provision for us. I ran across this quote when I was teaching about the prodigal son <clears throat> over in the his steps a year or so ago and a, a, a comment from MacArthur where he said a starving person has a single all-consuming passion for food and water nothing else has the slightest attraction or appeal to them nothing else can even get that person's attention nothing and that's what Christ chose to say here. That's the image that He chose to conjure up. I think it goes hand in hand with all those Scriptures we see, most of which you find 
in Psalm 119 where, where it talks about the whole heart or pursuing God with the whole heart. You find that phraseology also in Jeremiah and a couple of other places in the Psalms. Going after God, seeking Him with your whole heart. That means with nothing competing against it. Nothing. And that's what we do. Now you've had those who've tried to satisfy satisfy the longing, the need, if you will, in their own heart. Anything to deter them from dealing with their sin. Okay? You even have the example of Lucifer himself. You know, He set out to take what belonged to God if he could. Try to take that for himself. You have the example even of Nebuchadnezzar's pride to look around at what has happened. God said, I made all this happen for you. I made it all happen. It's all within my plan. But he wanted to take credit for it. The pride rose up. He wanted something to fulfill that, I like to say, that, that hole in the center of your chest that nothing can fill apart from God's provision. You've got the rich fool you know, who wanted to tear down barns and build other barns so he could have more stuff. Okay, That same thing is apparent today. That same falsehood, that same delusion runs rampant in a materialistic society like you and I live in, an affluent society. And what happens to people who engage in those kind of endeavors? They wind up with nothing. What if Even if they get what they want, it's so temporary and they can't see it. They can't see it. Like you say, I've never saw a a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, you know. You've heard that before. Can't take it with you. No, it don't work that way, does it? In Isaiah 55, verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, he says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The focus here is latching on, desiring the right kind of food. Desiring, specifically here, the presence of God, the righteousness of God. And we understand that we as believers are in right standing with God, correct? Through the righteousness that Christ has provided. Not not necessary this morning for us to go back and talk about justification versus sanctification and, you know, and... uh, the uh, progressive sanctification and all that. We, we understand that, and I'm confident that you understand that. But the, the words here are clear. This desire continues within our heart. It remains a motivational reality in our life. We want more of Christ. It's the one thing that we can crave above all else. And it's not wrong for us to do that. In fact, it's right for us to do that. And here's the good news. We will be rewarded we will be rewarded not just in the life to come, but in the life now. God will depart to us. He will impart to us our confidence, our assurance, clarity in our decisions, the the strength and the boldness that we need to rise to the challenge of ministry and service for Him in any kind of situation. Christ Himself will provide that. It's His great desire. It's His great joy to do that for us. Isaiah cries out in a very practical way. Why do you want all these other things? Why do you spend your time on things that will not satisfy, he says? 
Do we even evaluate our time, our money, our endeavors along this line? Do we do that? We should. So why is spiritual hunger even necessary? Why is it necessary? Because the Bible is clear that it is. That's because righteousness, which is the goal, righteousness is required for the effective spiritual life. It's not optional. It's not something that we can pass on. Now, we're talking about righteousness not in, in terms of justification. That's a given as I continue with this. We're talking about progressing in our life under Christ, through Christ. We're talking about moving on, being strengthened, being great, more greatly equipped to do things for Him and for the sake of the church which He died for. And my terminology is, I, I refer to it as a radical reality. You know, this is just where you just got to cut to the chase sometimes and just deal with it very, very bluntly, very, very specifically. Now listen to this. Those who belong to the king hunger and thirst for the king's righteousness. That's what they want. They desire sin to be replaced with virtue and disobedience to be replaced by obedience. They are eager to serve the Word and will of God. And I call it, as I said, a radical reality. Quite frankly, Christ is our all in all. And this isn't just it's, or specifically manifested by the person who gets up on a soapbox and, you know, and, and at work has always seemed, it seems to be speaking out at an unopportune time and trying to demonstrate their boldness in Christ or whatever. It's not about that. It's about yielding to the power and presence of God. It's about dedicating yourself to the study of His Word. It's about staying focused upon Him in your prayer life. It's about evaluating everything that comes into your life by way of service opportunity, whatever, against the will of God. Because He's not just our Savior. He is our Lord. We serve Him. He decides the direction. He he grants the provisions for us. He promised to do that. And I can report to you this morning that He will never, ever fail to do that. He won't do it. He won't do it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you've ever read him, certainly some of his quotes and so forth, he makes a comment about Matthew 5, 6 here, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here's a quote from him. He says, I do not know of a better test for anyone or that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of Christian profession than a verse like this one, he says. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations Again, this reflects this hunger and thirst above all else for the righteousness of Christ to be a continual process, a continual growing in our life. This manifests the fact that we've had the experience, that we do rest in Christ, that He is first and foremost in our desires that's what he is to us he's precious to us 
he's dear to us. David would say when he says so much, but in Psalm 119.97, he just simply says, Oh Lord, I love your law. Now David understood grace, but he loved the law. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. He doesn't, <coughs> he doesn't omit the law. He understands that by understanding the law, as he says, it is our schoolmaster. It does that initial work in our heart of teaching us about what sin is. And in a battle, in our fight, you, you can't fight any enemy until you understand that enemy, until you know what it is. The law is indeed, as he says, our schoolmaster. It teaches us. It warns us. Psalm 19 says, by your words, 1911, by your words, I am warned. And he sees that as a good and godly thing. Uh, uh, An explanation, if you will, a demonstration of God's love for us because he tells us the truth. And he lets us have this, if you will, confrontation with the Word of God. And because it is the Word of God and it is God-breathed, it does its work on the heart that has come alive through the new birth. It is no longer spiritually dead. When the Word speaks, even the law, when it speaks to us, we hear the voice of God and we understand why He's doing that, why He's pointing out in our life that this is wrong or this direction is not right. You need to go this way, not that way. And we see it and accept it for what it is. It's the loving hand of God guiding and directing us in our life. We respond to that. It's our joy. It should give us a great secure feeling, if you will. That should be our experience. I noted to go back at this point and just look for a moment again at what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7. I'll go back to a couple of these verses in a moment yet again, but I'm going to just start at verse 14 from Romans 7 because we just love Paul's experience and it speaks so much to us here. It gives us such hope and understanding about what God has done for us and yet our own continual conflict, if you will, as we live in this flesh. Verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, once again, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. I mean, you see little elements of these these first few Beatitudes here. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, Paul says, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. That would be a most discouraging dilemma if we were not assured this morning that Christ has first and foremost paid our sin debt. He's paid it in full. <clears throat> you can't help but when you read that, Paul pouring out his heart talking about his own continual struggle with his flesh and rest assured, Paul is a Christian when he writes that. Highlighting this continual battle that goes on within us. And my point here is this. It, this battle in part is what encourages us. It's what con- it causes this desire, if you will, this hunger, this this thirst for God's righteousness to continue because we know that we're destitute. We know that we cannot live without it. We know that we're on the verge any given moment of being more of a problem than we are a help to people because of our flesh. We just know that. And when we walk in the Spirit, He also says that we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, however it is. And once again, that's not just talking about sexual things. It's anything that we desire to feed this flesh, whether it's pride or notoriety, whatever. He's provided for us in that regard. And He'll continue to provide. So why is, it hung, uh, why is uh, this spiritual hunger necessary? Because it's required for an effective spiritual life but please note just as paul says here even our failures and our disappointments will not dissuade us we have to have this in order to move forward in our life if nothing else is a defense the world continues to bombard us really day in and day out anything to get us off track to come in and claim our allegiances, if you will, to mess with our priorities in this life, to open up little or find little little cracks in that spiritual armor, if you will, where he can creep in. Uh, He being Satan himself, his minions, and plant his seeds, if you will, to cause us to get off track and desire things that will serve eventually to wreck us or to ruin us in some fashion. Paul says again in, in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Christ has promised us what's going to happen. There is a place laid up for us. There is victory there is a final resting place we will be with him he tells us in john 14 he's coming to do he's coming back so that where he is we may be also that is his desire and that's going to be a reality you know in john 6 toward the end there it says that after christ was talking about you know some of the cost about being a follower and so forth not just a free meal here and there, or getting to see uh, a, a, a miracle or whatever. It says a lot of people just turned away from him. It says they no longer walked with him. 
And he'd say to his disciples, well, y'all going to leave too? That's what he says. <laughs> Maybe not quite like that, but uh, that's the gist of it. Are y'all going to leave? And Peter said, where are we going to go? He said, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. That's why he could say later on, Peter, you know, God has put this within you. God has put it within you. That's what we're talking about. That's where it starts. And from that moment, even with Peter's faults and failures, a continual battle of the flesh and pride in his life, he was still headed toward the goal. He stopped at one point. I go fishing, he says, after the resurrection. He stopped at one point, but Christ was faithful. He says, if you deny me, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And there he was on the shore, ready to minister, ready to take Peter once again back through this. A point, take him to a point of spiritual poverty. Take him to a point of mourning over, over his sin. Take him to a point of being able to forgive himself and have confidence not in his abilities, not in Peter, but in what Christ would do in his life. And he says, you're not off the hook. Feed my sheep. Three times he told him that. You're not off the hook. If this were about you, we would all be having a bad day. But it's not just about you. I'm going to provide for you. That's what we have to know and believe. He never, ever fails to provide. And we go on and we see Peter's, in his times of great faithfulness, his fullness of the Spirit, if you will. God did great and wonderful things through him. He still battled, did he not? He still continued to battle. But Christ was faithful. Christ Himself is our example. John 8, 29, And He who sent me is with me. Jesus talking. He has not left me alone. Christ says, For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Wow, that's a lofty endeavor, is it not? But that has to be our heart. Christ has set our example. First and foremost, it's Christ. It's the person of Christ. It's the desire for Him to indwell us, to direct us in every aspect of our life. So what does spiritual hunger mean to us? To hunger and thirst. Linguistically here it says that this is a present participle. Which signifies both well a continuous longing, a continuous seeking. That's the, the uh, wordage that was put forth. That's the way it received. This is something that begins and continues. Luke's parallel passage in 621, he says, Blessed are you who hunger now. Right now. And yet it continues. Psalm 63.1, O God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. David understood this because he had a relationship, a personal relationship with the one true God. He understood that. He experienced that presence. He understood the power of it, the necessity of it. And it would be an understatement to remind you this morning that he fought his own fleshly battles. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, he says that I may be found in him, talking about Christ, not having my own righteousness, not righteousness of my own derived from the law, he says, because he's already said there isn't nothing like that to be found in the law. 
but rather, he says, that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him. I love this verse, Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew where his bread was buttered, as we say. He knew what was most important. He knew what he could not step away from. He knew it from a different perspective because he had tried everything else. Even in the religious realm, he was was on top of the pile. He was. He was the go-to guy. He was the up and coming man in Judaism. Give those warrants to, to Saul. He'll go out. He'll take care of this problem. He'll put these people of the way, as Christians were referred. He'll, he'll put them in jail. He'll disperse their families. He'll put an end to this in the name of God. And he'll have fun doing it. And that's exactly what he went about to do. Paul knew what it was to seek acceptance with God in an effort to establish your own righteousness, to be able to say, God, look at me. Look at me, how good I am, how dedicated I am. Foolishness, isn't it? Against the backdrop of what we know about Christ and what He has provided for us. Peter would simply say in his latter years, I can just see him sitting on a rock somewhere, maybe with his arm around some yearning believers. And he makes a statement, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop. It's not going to stop. You're not going to get to a point of arrival in your spiritual life. You're not going to get there. The moment we begin thinking like that, it becomes a detriment to us. We continually pursue Him and the continual change in our own life. That's what we offer back to Him because He is not only Savior, but Lord. We offer Him ourselves. Ourselves. He's the only one we can go to. Again, a quote, when the prodigal son was hungry, what did he do? He went to feed on the husk, remember? He wanted to get out there with the pigs. He was, he was pretty hungry. If you look at that story a little deeper, you know, he was going to go out and get a job, which is what he did. You know, he's going to get, have another plan. His first plan didn't work out. And he became very hungry. So this is what he does. But, however, when he was starving, when he wasn't just hungry, when he was starving, what did he do? He turned to his father. He remembered his father's example. This is what causes us to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God continually because we've been to that point. We've, we've, we've been to the point where we're destitute for water, spiritual water. We're destitute for food, spiritual food. And you see these metaphors used throughout the Bible. Water and food. We'll never thirst, Jesus says, when we come to Him. He is our meat. He is our bread. He will feed us. He spoke of having a Uh, a bread, if you will, that they did not even know about. Something that would fulfill Him. This He shares with us. 
he'll do that. So what's the object of our spiritual hunger? Well, we can look at the sentence here and say, well, it's righteousness, okay? That's the object. And that's true. And I've said a good bit this morning about in an effort to make it clear that we must first hunger and thirst for for salvation. God puts that within us. We understand He's the one who draws us. He's the one who reaches down. Nobody seeks after God. And yet we see all these verses in the Bible that challenge us, encourage us to seek Him. Well, that, in, that infers He's already reached down for us because His Word is true when He says there's nobody that seeks Him in and of themselves. Nobody. We don't have that within us. It's His witness to us through nature, through the Word, through the person of Jesus Christ, through our own conscience. He witnesses to us. He awakens us. Now, you may think that's you, but it's not. Because you, just you, would not do that. There's nothing within you to make you do that. We can respond to Christ and what He does. The awakening that He's providing for us. We hunger and thirst. We hunger and thirst. And this is a continual thing for us. So what then? It's the saved who will hunger and thirst for what? A greater sanctification. We have a greater desire to be more like Christ. He's our everything. Man, we're, we're talking about eternity here. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the escape of something that we so desperately deserved. And that was a total separation from God. Forever and ever, amen, without any intervention whatsoever. A done deal for all time and eternity. And out of His mercy and grace, He has provided salvation for us. How can we not respond to Him as Lord? How can we not with great joy sift everything in our life through His Word? How can we not take every desire? How can we not be exposed before Him in every element of our life? Because we want His approval. We want His direction. Is there anyone out there this morning saying, Payne, you are a fanatic. Oh, you're right on point. <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. Not just a fanatic, but for anyone who can join me this morning in saying that they've been there. They've been to the point of realization and acceptance of their sin. They've trusted Christ. They've experienced the new birth. They know that they've come alive spiritually. And they've lived long enough to know that Christ is faithful to His promises. He will provide. He will do great and wondrous things for His honor and glory alone. He will not share it. And that is our desire. That is our desire. Psalm 42.1 As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? David's saying, I'm done with this life. Let's get on to the pinnacle. When will I appear before Him? And I don't have to be afraid. There's something that lingers in that, I think. We think about standing before God because we don't have right now the 
the blessed ability to forget our sin, do we? We know, because we've been there, we know in a very real way what we are, what we're capable of. We know that. And it only serves to highlight the the magnificent grace of God in our life. We know this beyond any shadow of doubt. Paul shares with us in Philippians chapter 1. He says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. We talked about this continuing. More and more, he says, in real knowledge and in all discernment. These are things that manifest our growth in Christ, knowledge and discernment about Him. He continues in verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Blameless? That's what He's done for us. Having been filled with the fruit of what? Righteousness. That which we desire. That's the the focal point of our hunger and thirst. He says we're filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He understood it. There you have it. Motivation is right. The focal point is right. It's the person of Christ. Both salvation and sanctification reveal the righteousness. That righteousness is, as it says, the unqualified and unlimited object of our hunger and our thirst. Now this word righteousness, which we haven't really focused, focused on as a particular word, we can do that now particular Greek word here and I noted that in the gospel of Matthew the term righteousness normally and all the times that it's used normally refers to actual personal righteousness that results from one's relationship with God he says that is the righteousness of sanctification rather than the righteousness of justification that's the specific term that's put forth okay again it's not talking about in terms of justification, that's a done deal. That's a given. He's talking about their life. It's, a, it's the offering of a life. He's saying, let righteousness come forth from me as a result of my uh, yielding to you. It will yield the fruit of righteousness. That's what the Scripture says. And Christ is saying, this should be our desire. What, how else would we say it? I want my life everything in my life to be acceptable to Him. I want my life to be a mirror as much as it can be of what He has done in my life, what He is doing in my life. And this is my continual pursuit. So that's the specific connotation, okay? Not the imparted righteousness of justification. Again, He's already made it clear that's a done deal. The first three Beatitudes deal with that. And then he says it's those who've experienced that who can offer up a life, a life now that's no longer dead in its trespasses and sins, a life that is dominated by the Spirit of God. And one can see the work of Christ in that life. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. <clears throat> he would say in Matthew 5.20, a very sobering verse to those who heard it in that day, Christ said, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I've taught this verse before, and I think errantly. 
saying, well, yeah, he's talking about the righteousness of Christ. If they haven't experienced that, then they don't have any hope. They can't. And that's true. That's true. But the context is manifestations of righteousness in one's life because they have come to Christ. That's what he's talking about. And it reminds us that you come to Christ, you come alive spiritually, the Word is now in you, guiding you, directing you. Listen, as he says many times, there will be fruit. There will be fruit. It, it doesn't make sense for no fruit to pop up. We'll get there at Matthew, what, 13? The parables and so forth. We'll get there. We'll be, we'll be looking at all that. and We'll uh, no doubt reflect back upon this. Well, a lot of information. What's the result of spiritual hunger? Well, quite simply, he says you're going to be satisfied. Good news. You're going to be satisfied. Tortazo, satisfied. A term used to speak of feeding animals until they are so full that they don't want any more. They walk away. That's the way the word would have been used in their day. Tortazio. I'm sad to say it's been used about me before, I'm sure. you know. <laughs> but that's the image that he's putting forth. He says it's the future passive tense, meaning they shall be satisf- satisfied. It emphasizes that our part is to seek and God's part is to supply or to satisfy. Those come together there in the original language. Psalm 107.9, For He has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. Psalm 34.10, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. These are God's promises to His people. Psalm 23, verse 1, and then verse 5 from 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. No need to want. He's provided. Verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. A, a picture, a vision, if you will, of God's overwhelming provision in our life. In John 6.35, He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. We have that confidence in Him. Our spiritual hunger, our thirst for Him can and will be tested. A couple of minutes here. Can and will be tested. And there's several marks of this genuine hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. One is the dissatisfaction with self. We no longer have confidence in the flesh like perhaps we did in our ignorance, certainly as unbelievers. I read earlier from Romans 7, Paul said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of that, it's not there. It's not there. And then again in verse 24, he cries out, wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death. Do you know the picture there? (coughs) Talking about the body of this death, that phrase. If you read that, it's a gross thing. One of the things that they would do to punish a person who had murdered or killed someone sometimes was to take that dead body and tie it to the murderer 
and take them out somewhere in the desert and let them go. I tell you what, the things that people can come up with. But, and they were, it was tied in such a way they, they couldn't get this, this decaying body off of them. That's a horrible thing. Kind of make you think twice about murdering anybody else if you survive. We're a long way from that nowadays. That comes under cruel and unusual punishment, I think, yeah. But, work. Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away, you know the story from Luke 18, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We know there's nothing in here. We know what our need is, and we appear before God in this fashion. God, lift us up. Humble yourselves, it says, James, in the sight of Him, and He will lift you up. He will exalt you in due time. When? When your life can bring honor and glory to Him and not you. That's when He will do it. Plain and simple. Matthew 8.8 But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. To me, it is absolutely amazing that a Roman centurion could find that kind of faith in Jesus' day. And Jesus Himself said, I have not found a faith like His, a Roman centurion, from the occupying force. Nobody like Him. I've not found anything like that in all of Jerusalem, He says. Can you imagine? That won Him a lot of points, didn't it? With His Jewish crowd. But He spoke the truth because the man understood. He understood the power of God. John 1.27 John the Baptist, we recall him saying, is the one who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And again later on, what is it, John 3, 30 or 33 right in there, he says, he's got an increase, but I've got a decrease. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm not satisfied in any way with myself. I'm a servant. That's all I am. John understood that. And he was faithful to that. It's a testimony to us as well. And let me bust through the last ones. How else might we know? Well, there's a freedom from the dependence on external things for satisfaction. It goes without saying, doesn't it? No confidence in the flesh, no confidence in worldly things to satisfy what we need. We've learned to be free from that. Thirdly, there's a craving for the Word of God. I like the uh, MacArthur's note here. He says, a hungry man does not have to be begged to eat. No. And it's the same in spiritual terms. It's the same regarding one's hunger for the Word of God. Are you hungry this morning? I'm so excited. I've been very excited about what Joel is bringing to us. This has just been really rich. And he's just laboring over this. And I've not failed to be, to be really challenged and enlightened with what he's been sharing. And I pray for more of the same this morning. To look forward to the Word of God changing our heart and life each and every day. Bringing us closer to Christ. A craving for the Word of God. Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He cried out. Job 
23.12, I have not departed from the command of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. He's hungering and thirsting. And then there's the, the pleasantness, if you will, of the things of God. The satisfaction that we find in godly things. Thomas Watson said, the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness can feed on the myrrh of the gospel as well as the honey. Do you get the analogy? What is myrrh? Do you recall? Myrrh is a fragrance. We don't even need to eat it, he says. We can just smell of it. We can just know that it's there and that the provision is there and it's just around the corner. And he puts it like that. Even the Lord's reproofs of us bring satisfaction because we understand from Hebrews that He's manifesting to us His great love for us. He corrects us. He chastens us as a father would correct and chasten his children. Job would say in 13.15, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before Him. I'll bring my heart before God. And if He chooses to slay me, my hope is still in Him. That's a person who's given over. That's a person who doesn't have anything competing with their love for the Lord Jesus. And then, at the end of MacArthur commentary, he makes up a word here. At least it won't hit on any dictionary word I found. Unconditionality. Alright? Unconditionality. And I chose to add this. When our spiritual hunger and thirst are genuine, they will make no conditions. They will seek and accept God's righteousness in whatever way He chooses to provide it and will obey His commands no matter how demanding they may be. Christ Himself would cry out as our example, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. And in closing, I can only go back and read once again from Philippians 3.10 where he says, Paul says, his desire is that I may know Him intimately and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. The person and presence of Christ, our hunger and thirst for Him must be and will be for the believer the single most dominating reality in our life. Period. Blessed be the name of the Lord.